and welcome to anyone who's visiting us this evening. You're very welcome here, and I, I trust that you will be blessed by God's Word. It's our normal practice here at Calvary, um, ordinarily, to go through the Bible um, systematically. So you'll be coming in at the beginning of a, um, a, a series this evening. Um, but before I start to preach, can we just bow our heads in prayer? Our Father, we come before you and we give you our praises. We exalt you because you are our great and blessed God. Father, we're so aware of our need. We are a dependent people, Lord. And tonight we are so dependent on your Holy Spirit to be among us. Oh Lord, I pray that as I preach your word, your Holy Spirit, so to speak, would take these words and press them upon people's hearts and that it will be Christ speaking through me, I pray. Lord, as we approach the scriptures, help us to remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Oh Lord, open the eyes of our hearts open the eyes of our minds we may behold your law and see wondrous things we pray in Jesus name Amen Okay. so keep your Bibles open at Matthew 11 verses 6 Sometimes the word's hard because we don't understand what God is saying to us. Some parts of scripture are obscure, hard to understand. Whereas other times we find the scriptures hard because God's word goes against all the cultural norms and values that even we as Christians have taken on ourselves. Political correctness. The emphasis of values such as individuality, freedom of self-expression. What's okay for me is okay for me. What's okay for you is okay for you. Everyone's ideas and views are equal, no matter what their moral preferences are, no matter what their religious persuasions are. Nowadays, people need safe spaces in universities to protect them from views that might cause them offence. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute authority or rule for our lives. Well, the Bible does not hold to this politically correct view of the world that we live in. Sometimes God's word is uncomfortable for us uncomfortable because it searches us. We see plainly God's verdict about human nature, about sin, and about judgment. Now certainly these passages before us fall into this category. I think they're relatively plain to understand. They're not obscure, but they're very, very hard words to hear, and they're hard words to 
Jesus has been speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist, if you recall. We learned that John's expectation about the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God were not matched by his reality, his lived reality. As Chris was preaching last week, John is in prison and he has what Chris called a momentary wobble. He'd hoped that the messianic king would usher in his end-time rule straight away, his end-time reign, immediately upon his coming. But there seems to be some delay. And John's uncertain. He's uncertain about what's going on. He sends a message. Jesus sends a message to John stating that he is the one prophesied. He is the Messiah. In fulfillment of prophecies such as Isaiah 35, He says the blind, they receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. He then speaks of John in exalted terms. He says that John, there's none greater than John among those who are born of women. John is the forerunner. He's paving the way for the coming Messiah. He's the Elijah to come. Now Jesus now, he's shifting his focus. He's been speaking about John. And now he's shifting his focus to speak about this generation. Those who witnessed the ministry of John. And now witnessed Christ in his ministry. I want us to consider our passages this evening under three headings. This generation is a generation that is, firstly, impossible to please. Secondly, unwilling to repent. And thirdly, under the judgment of God. So my first point, a generation who is impossible to please, if you see in verses 16 to 19. So Jesus begins this section by addressing this generation, which is made up of both the religious leaders and the Jewish people. Now, I'm inclined to think that he means primarily the religious leaders, but but not exclusively. He's addressing those who were among the crowds. They went out to see John in the wilderness, and then they witnessed Christ's teaching. They witnessed his signs. They witnessed his miracles. They witnessed his healings in surrounding towns. And what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, what is absurd enough or ridiculous enough for me to compare to this generation? And then he speaks to us about this metaphor, this metaphor of a children's game to describe the utter unreasonableness and childishness of their unbelief. Now, if you look in the text, there's a kind of irony, isn't there? There's um, There's a sarcasm in his tone. Because the religious leaders, they would have seen themselves as those of great wisdom. They would have seen themselves as as those of great maturity, great knowledge, the great purveyors of spiritual reality, the guides. Yet Jesus is saying they're impossible to please. He's saying that they're childish. He's saying they're hard-hearted, they're obstinate. So if we look at this metaphor, it's it's quite self-explanatory. We have the image of um, children playing in the marketplace, sitting down. You've got a group of children in one end of the market sitting down. And they will play a cheerful, joyful tune on the flute with the expectations that their mates on the other side, their playmates, would respond and show joy. But they didn't dance. 
they didn't respond. Then they would sing a somber, solemn funeral song. And still their playmates didn't move. Whatever they did, it just wasn't good enough. It wouldn't please their playmates. The picture is one of a child who's discontented, who's petulant, who's difficult, who's obstinate, impossible to please. Jesus and John don't conform to their expectations. And they don't do what the, that generation want them to do. And you see how this cor corresponds to the ministries of John and Jesus. John the Baptist, he came speaking words of judgment and seriousness. He said things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? The axe is at the root of the tree. He was an ascetic. He was living in the wilderness. People came to hear John. He didn't go to them. He was set apart. It says in the text that he was neither eating or drinking. It doesn't mean he literally didn't eat or drink. It means that he was living a life of temperance. He was moderate. He was um, living on locusts and honey. This was a man of strictness. He didn't drink alcohol. He wasn't sociable. He wasn't attending the events and the soirees of the day. This was a serious-minded, ascetic man living a secluded life and preaching a message of judgment and repentance. He came in fulfillment of the Scriptures and was called the greatest by Christ. Yet they mocked him. They mocked him, saying that he has a demon. So here they are attributing the demonic to the last great prophet of the Old Testament. This was the greatest man that ever lived according to Christ. The last great prophet. And they're attributing to him the demonic. They leveled an attack against him saying, in a sense they're saying he's nuts. They're saying he's weird, he's crazy. They rejected him because they found him too severe. Now Jesus, on the other hand, he was different to John. He was seen at weddings. He was among the outcasts. He would go out to the people. He'd go to the sick and the poor. He'd go to the tax collectors. He went to people's houses. He had a uh, ministry that was more socially focused. He was a, much of his ministry was around meals and everyday life. He was among the people. They still leveled an accusation against him, stating that he was a drunkard, stating that he was a, a glutton, a kind of hedonistic, licentious type, a kind of worldly figure, spending all his time with sinners. There was a celebratory note to Jesus' ministry. He pronounced the kingdom has come and the gospel of good news was here. There was festivity in his ministry. Although he was the man of sorrows, there was much joy in Christ's ministry. He was preaching good news. But they still didn't like it. We see here how this generation, in its unbelief and blindness, leveled unreasonable accusations against John and Christ. What they're doing, they're, they're refusing to attribute to them the, the true worth and goodness of their ministries. They're calling what is good, evil. And then in their darkened and depraved sinful minds, 
They're saying what is right is wrong. People of God, this is the effect of sin. Do we not see this in our own lives? Do we not see this in the lives of people around us? They're just impossible to please. Their hearts are totally depraved. They're darkened. They're shut up in their unbelief. Now, as, as I was preparing this, I was, um, I was trying to consider some personal examples, and there, was, there were many, but a few came to mind. When I was um, first saved many years ago, I worked in substance misuse services. And uh, I worked in an open planned office, and I shared the office space with nurses and medical doctors. I was full of the zeal of having newly been saved. I was wanting to talk to anyone about it. I didn't know anything. I had no kind of theological knowledge, but I did know one thing. I was so overjoyed at the free grace of Jesus Christ in my life. I knew I had been a terrible sinner, and now I knew free salvation. And I remember talking um, to one of the medical doctors, a trainee medical doctor there, and um, full of this joy, speaking to him about the gospel. And he was a really nice guy, um, very intelligent man. He turned around and said to me, I find your message offensive. You see, he wanted to smuggle in some kind of works. He, he wanted a religion that recognised his worth. He wanted a religion that recognised his intelligence and his ability. He didn't like the freedom. He didn't like the joy. He didn't like the simplicity of the gospel message. It was too free for him. Another colleague in the same office, a woman, I was talking to her about the gospel and she said to me, oh, I don't like all that hell and sin stuff. I haven't even mentioned anything to do with that. But immediately she said that she was a feminist and she said, I don't like the resurrection because it's male in its emphasis. You see, she thought it was too harsh, too masculine. She needed a feminine, soft, more emotionally sensitive religion colleague about a year ago, a Jewish lady in my office, I thought she's Jewish, I thought there may be some point of contact here, I thought we could have a conversation about the Hebrew scriptures, had a, had a conversation about Exodus, the uh, redemption of Israel from Egypt, and she looked at me as if I was absolutely mad, and she said something along the lines, do you really believe all that stuff? Do you actually believe it? Oh yeah. She said, do you believe the miracles as well? I said, yeah. And she couldn't believe that in this modern scientific age, someone would believe that. She thought I was intellectually in the dark ages. She needed something more sophisticated. She needed something more intellectually modern, something more scientific, a belief that's rooted in observable facts. No doubt she thought my religion was backward, it lacked sophistication, probably saw me as some kind of mad fundamentalist. People will use excuses to rationalise their unbelief. They will see us as nuts, backwards and intellectually in the dark ages. That's just the way it is. Don't expect so-called sophisticated, educated postmoderns to always welcome your commitment to biblical truth. Or supernaturalism. And we see this, I think we see this closer to home in the church as well. You know, let's, let's bring this to the church. I mean, people can bemoan that there's, there's just too much law in the church, isn't there? There's too much duty. There's not enough grace. 
I've heard that said so many times. I've heard it said here, not by anyone that's here or is among us at the moment, but some time ago, charges of legalism can be levelled against people that really take seriously sanctification, really take seriously holiness, but they're legalists. They're seen as stiff, rigid. On the other hand, I've heard a, a kind of suspicion of joyful expressions of worship. Oh, they're too happy. They're, um, they want to express their joy in worship. They're happy, clappy. They're suspicious they're, that their faith is too emotive. Their conversion, oh, it's a bit frivolous. It's a bit temporary, maybe. There's, there's a sense where, where people can be impossible to please because they have this same spirit as these, uh, this generation. Now, this doesn't mean that one shouldn't carefully assess ministries. It doesn't mean that if a ministry is off balance or promulgating false teaching, we don't need to call that out or assess it or be mindful or wary of that. It doesn't mean that we don't exercise discernment. And it doesn't mean if people are seeking and they're among us, they, they want to ask legitimate, constructive questions. They've got genuine questions. That it doesn't mean that people can't level constructive criticisms against us. We welcome that. It doesn't mean we can't ask honest questions and even share our doubts. This is something else. I think this helps us to rem remember that as a church, if we preach the gospel faithfully and live a life of holy obedience, we will face rejection. We will face criticism and accusations at the level of our ministry, at the level of our preaching, and possibly even personally. The Son of God, the greatest prophet, John the Baptist in the Scriptures, they faced rejection, accusations and unbelief among the people who heard them. We learn here as well that although the Gospel is very, very good news... There are times that it can come to us as bad news to awaken us of our need. It, some, it sometimes comes to us as a dirge, as a funeral song with severity. Other times the gospel will come to us as a sweet, with a sweetness and a joy. The law shows us our need and the gospel provides the way of salvation. We need to hear the goodness and mercy of God. But we also need to hear the severity and the wrath of God. You can't have one and not the other. You, you need both. This is our God. The commentator Matthew Paul comments on, on verses 18 and 19, stating that God has used all means to win people to the gospel. Excuse me, I'm just going to have a drink. We come to this rather enigmatic saying. Um, it's uh, it's uh, 19, verse 19 at the end. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now I think there's different ways of taking this and time doesn't permit to kind of go into all that but I think the most natural way of reading this is that the righteous fruit of John and Jesus' life a ministry of vindicated in the life of the true followers. 
Those who have saving faith, true believers, they'll demonstrate God's wisdom in lives of holiness and uprightness. Wisdom's children will vindicate God's message of salvation, regardless of the form it comes in, whether it comes in a more austere or strict way, whether it comes in a more joyful way. Wisdom's children will see the message with spiritual eyes and they will vindicate it. The problem here, it's not with the message or even the messenger. It's, it's with the he- hearers. It's with their hard and unbelieving hearts and their unwillingness to hear. My second point is this generation is unwilling to repent. Verse 20. The next section is a whole unit. However, I want us to focus on verse 20 where he denounces the cities where most of his mighty works had been, done, had been done because they did not repent. Often in churches, when there's a huge emphasis on the miraculous, the supernatural, often that's associated with a desire for something theatrical, something effective, an effect. Rarely do we hear an emphasis on repentance as well. Now, throughout the scriptures, there's a regular, not exclusively, but there's a regular connection between God's mighty, miraculous works and the need for repentance. Think of Acts 2, after the effusion of the Spirit and power on the church on the day of Pentecost. Peter, he preaches his sermon. They've all been filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in different languages, different dialects. And Peter, he preaches his sermon. And when the crowd asks, what shall we do? He says, repent, repent and be baptised. In the next chapter in Acts, chapter 3, there's this amazing healing. Peter and John, they heal a lame beggar who's been sitting outside the temple. And um, Peter, he speaks again in Solomon's portico amongst the people. And again, he says, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is a crucial part of the Christian experience. And we do well to consider this tonight. We need to ask, are we a repenting people? In Matthew 11, it's, it's probable that Jesus is alluding to a kind of ongoing, obstinate unbelief. And it's easy to, for us as, as, not, as, as believers to think, well, we've done the repentance bit. We're done with that. And see it as a one-off thing, but... We need to be defined as Christians as a repenting people. Are we repenting of specific sins? I think it's easy to speak about sin in general terms, isn't it? But are we repenting of specific sins? Are we living lives of true repentance? Now this will set us apart from people in the world. People will be sorry of the consequences in their lives. And I work in in an office full of incredibly decent and moral people. But what will set us apart is are we a repenting people? Now what's meant by repentance? The word literally means to change one's mind and purpose. It's a turning from sin. It's It's a putting to death. It's a putting off. It's a renouncing. I once heard a sermon where a gardening metaphor was used and I found this very helpful. It's like pulling up weeds. It's like a killing, a putting to death. The Puritan Thomas Watson says there are six ingredients to repentance. 
sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and a turning from sin. Okay? But it's not just that. Repentance, it's a, it's a turning to God. It's a putting on, it's a planting, there's a positive act in repentance. John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, speaks of the close relationship between repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. I've heard it said that they're like two sides to one coin. Although they're distinct, they're inseparable. He goes on to say, quote, Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists in turning from sin unto God. So there's a, there's, a, there's a sense that repentance isn't just a mortifying. It's not just a putting to death or doing away with. And there is a turning to God. Now in their pride, they were unable to see their sin for what it was. They were unable to see Jesus for who he is. Do you see here that, that they were the most privileged of people? Very privileged people. They had the greatest of preachers the world had ever known. They saw the most miraculous signs and wonders. Yet they would not repent. I thought of um, Luke 16.31 where, where Jesus says that neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We sometimes speak of great preachers and great saints in the past with such deference and respect, don't we? And uh, we almost wish we were there. Well, can you imagine being under the ministry of Christ? People, I've heard people in other church settings, they're often pining after the miraculous. They want to go back to the early church days where all the miracles and signs were happening. They saw Christ's miracles firsthand. Are we not a privileged people? We have faithful teaching week in, week out. What do we do with this? Does it make us better? Are we a repenting people? My third point is, this was a generation that were under the judgment of God. If you look at verses 20 to 24. This section speaks of judgment and the pronouncement of woes against the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. Now this is, this is a hard text and the doctrine of judgment is extremely uncomfortable. Um, we, I think we recall, recoil from it for a number of reasons, and complex reasons, there may be some very personal reasons. I think one of those reasons is, is somehow we struggle to see the fairness of it. There's something in us, in our fallen state, that somehow thinks it's unfair. Well, one of the things I found very helpful... And I think we should feel uncomfortable with judgment. It's not, a, it's not a doctrine that we should be comfortable with. But I think something I found helpful is when we think of judgment, we need to consider the character and attributes of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his justice, his goodness and truth. God cares about what we do and what we believe. Justice is an essential property of God. 
He's infinitely just. He's superlatively just. He's just in all that he does. He's not only just, but he's justice itself. He doesn't just do justice. He hasn't got a bit of justice in him that he parcels out. He is justice. Now, if we ponder and meditate on that, that goes some way to help us, I think. God doesn't incrementally kind of gather information like a human judge, and he doesn't have any prior knowledge. And he kind of sifts it, and he weighs it, he looks at the evidence. He needs to kind of go out the back to deliberate, and then he... He makes a judgment like a sinful, finite judge. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives way before we do. So if we're worried about fairness, there's no greater fairness. Without God, there's no such thing as fairness. These passages, they speak of the day, the day of judgment. And in a sense... The unbeliever is already under the wrath of God. That's what the scriptures say. Already under the just condemnation of God. In verse 21, we see Christ begin to pronounce these woes. And I think here, you might think I'm pushing it a bit far, but I think we implicitly see the identity of Christ's deity in that he denounces the cities because they did not acknowledge his works and repent. These pronouncements of woe, they mean warning, grief, denunciation and regret. Chorazin and Bethsaida, these these were cities where most of Jesus' miracles were performed. Now, their witness of Christ in the flesh and his miracles placed them in a position of great privilege. Like I said, they had opportunity. They had responsibility. Now, this comparison's drawn to Tyre and Sidon, and these were Gentile cities. And if you recall Phil, if those of you were here this morning, Phil was telling us a bit about Tyre. Um, now, Tyre and Sidon, they're, they're mentioned in a variety of contexts. In the Old Testament, they're mostly condemned by the prophets such as Isaiah, if you read Isaiah 23, when Isaiah he brings this indictment to the nations, tires within that, and also in Ezekiel 26. And they, were, they had this indictment for their arrogance, their pride, their materialism, like Phil was saying, they were a trading nation, and, 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 their, and their pagan worship. Now the message here is quite clear, isn't it, that the greater the opportunity, the greater the privilege means the more responsible we are, the more culpable we are and the more severe the judgment is. That's what we see here. This comparison shows the utter hardness of the occupants of Chorazin and Bethsaida, doesn't it? And I think there's a message for us, people of God. We mustn't squander our spiritual opportunities. Capernaum was a place where Christ spent much of his time. He lived there for a period. They were exceptionally privileged. It looks like that they may have thought themselves more exalted. And in a sense, they were exalted because they had Christ among them. They were very privileged. Yet they're condemned to a place of death and punishment due to their contempt and abuse of Christ's teaching. 
and the mighty works that he showed. We see a comparison to Sodom, and I don't think I need to go into detail about Sodom. I think Sodom is, um, has a renown, doesn't it? Even among those outside of church. Christ is shockingly saying that it will be more tolerable, more tolerable for the sexually perverse, for the violent and inhabitants of a place renowned for utter ruin and death and judgment than it will be for Capernaum. They did not see the gravity of their sin. They didn't see the majesty of Jesus. Now there's a There's a common view among evangelicals. Some of you may have come across this. I've come across this a number of times. And it sounds very, very spiritual. And there's a real truth in it. There is a truth in it. All sin is the same. You may have heard that. There's no difference in sin. Sin's all the same. Now, there is a truth in that. Because all sin is deserving of God's just condemnation and wrath. That that, that is true. But there are differences. Those of us who are exposed to much teaching... Those of us who have more knowledge, if we willfully go on in sin, it's of a greater consequence than those who have not been exposed to the gospel. Those outside the walls of the church, if they haven't heard the gospel, they will be judged accordingly. But for us, there's a difference. There's a greater responsibility. There are degrees of punishment. We see here how pagan idolaters and the sexually immoral are to be treated more favourably than the quiet, the respectable contempt and unbelief of the regular churchgoer that's around the church or the person exposed to the gospel who's not willing, not willing to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We think about that, it's utterly shocking, isn't it? Outward civil religion is not enough. We see in the scriptures how obstinate unbelief, it rarely, unless God intervenes, it rarely just stays as it is. There's something of a development that goes on. It often grows into an outright hatred and a desire to kill Christ. If you look at Matthew 12, verses 9 to 14, just glance down on the page or over to the next page. I won't go into it in too much detail, but Christ heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It's wonderful healing, such compassion, such mercy. What do the religious elites want to do if you glance at the end? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. In John 15, Christ says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. You see, if if you're denying Christ, you're, you're denying God. They hated him and his Father. But the word is written in their law must be fulfilled that they hated me without a cause. In John 11... Wonderful miracle where Lazarus is raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead. What a miracle. It's not likely we'll ever see anything like that. The religious leaders, they're worried. They're worried that if they let Christ continue doing these wonderful, compassionate acts of mercy, 
that everyone will believe in him and the Romans will therefore take away their place and position and their nation. So they plan to put him to death. So we see how this obstinate unbelief, this unreasonableness develops largely into something. It can do. Well, um, as we come to an end, Jesus' words have been hard. They've been harsh for us to hear tonight. Yet, I, I do want to say there is still very, very good news. The gospel is still able to break open the hardened hearts. And God's command to repent and continues to this day. If you recall earlier, I mentioned Acts, two verses from Acts. He was preaching years later to that generation, the Jewish people. And the offer, the command to repent, was still going out to them. Now my question to you tonight, if you don't know Jesus, will you repent? Will you put your faith and trust in this Jesus? And know eternal peace. Will you respond to his voice? Now my sermon's coming to an end now. I've been assigned this section, but actually Jesus' discourse, it continues. Now at the beginning we were talking about this generation being a childish generation. They were compared to children. But we're to be compared to children as well. We're to be compared to little children. There's a difference. We're to be like children who are dependent needy. They were a petulant, unbelieving, childish nature. We're to be dependent and needy. Now Aaron's going to unpack this next week. We've heard some of the most harsh and hard words you'll ever hear. <coughs> but actually if we, if we glance down to verses 28 to 30, I think they're some of the most comforting words that you will ever hear. Come, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come? Will you come to this Jesus? Yes, there is a severe, there's a hard message, but there's such sweetness, there's such joy. There's eternal, heavenly joy in Christ. Do come. Amen.